The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, from verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Linda. Just a word of explanation about where we're going in our sermons for the next few weeks, and then we'll pray that the Lord will speak to us. I thought we're, it's, a, it's a fresh start with the sort of new season of children's works. For some people, of course, it's not. You've carried on doing the same thing all the way through the summer. But there is a real new season, and it would do us no harm to go right back to the beginning. Uh, so for the next six weeks, we're thinking about God's creation. We're going to have a particular focus next week as Creation Sunday and the following week will give a Sunday to thinking about the climate and our response in the world we're in. Uh, but today, and for three sermons after that, we're going to think about being made in God's image. What is it to be human? Today, made in his image, we'll be thinking about being made male, male and female. We'll be thinking about working and rest. We'll be thinking about sin and God's grace. And just what it is to be made in God's image in this world. So let's pray that God would speak to each one of us. How we praise you, Lord God, our Father, for your wonderful, beautiful creation. We're so sorry that it's spoiled, and yet we rejoice in how much beauty there is. And we pray that you would speak to us as a church over these next few weeks, and particularly today, about our place in your world, how you've made us, what your purpose is that each of us would take a step closer to your design for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We get two pictures of the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is a big picture overview. 
uh, God creates in six days and rests on the seventh. Uh, don't get hung up on the six days, literally. The Hebrew day means period of time. So just don't worry too much about, uh, about that. First, second, third, it's setting up a rhythm uh, of the seven days of the week God's made us to live. Uh, don't get hung up about creation and evolution. God made it all. Uh, the Bible doesn't get into the details of how he does it. It says he made it. If those are your issues, do go to Genexis. There's a whole load of scientific stuff going on there. Uh, it seems to be uh, clearly a mixture of some direct creation and some evolution, how it's happened. But God made it. That's the point. And you and I, men and women, are the pinnacle of his creation. Genesis chapter 2 then zooms in a bit more closely, more detail onto the man and the woman and the Garden of Eden. Now, we don't know exactly when Genesis 1 was written, but the story goes back a very, very long way. And it's very, very different from the other creation stories that other religions have. For example, Babylon has its creation story, the Enuma Elish. In this, the gods are a bit tired of working, and they complain to Marduk, the king of their gods, and he comes up with a plan to make things easier with them. Uh, he says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. He can serve the gods so we might be at ease. And most other creation myths have that idea. Work is beneath the gods, and they make humanity as their slaves. But against that backdrop, Genesis is strikingly different. There is one God who creates everything. He works. Uh, while other nations might worship the sun and the moon, and they did in Babylon, the God made the sun and the moon. Uh, one of my favorite verses in all of literature, God made the two great lights, the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. And my favorite throwaway phrase in all of literature, he also made the stars. Just now, billions of them God has made. This God doesn't hate work. He relishes work. He's satisfied by it. He creates a world for us to flourish in, a place to enjoy his presence and to look after it as his partners. So he makes us in his image. Verse 26 and 27. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they can rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So two clear purposes. God makes us for relationship with him and indeed each other, and he makes us to rule over his creation, to steward his creation. Those are the sort of two halves of the sermon this morning. First of all, God makes us for relationship. Verse 26, let us make man in our image, male and female. Now, Jesus would later reveal that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within God, there is an eternal relationship of love. There always has been. There always will be. And we are made in his image as relational people in God's image. And God makes us male and female, verse 27. And somehow the complementarity between male and female reflects something of the relationship within God. Somehow just men on their own doesn't do it and just women on their own doesn't do it. It's male and female together that reflect God's image. More on that in a few weeks' time. Uh, it's not good for us to be alone. We're made for a relationship. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 
uh, in the story God's made Adam and he's on his own. It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him because God is relational, so we are. And the word helper is not at all repressive. We'll look at this. God is described as our helper. Uh, So we'll look at this when we look at male and female in a few weeks' time. We'll see in chapter 3 how Adam and Eve disobey God, how sin enters the world, and all relationships are strained, strained. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, marriage, parenting, family. But we're still made for relationships. Something cries out for us. I found it interesting in a generation with so much family breakdown that the TV program Friends was such a hit. It still is. It still is. My kids are still watching it on repeat endlessly. But this sort of creating a community of belonging. And whether it's families or groups of friends, God has made us for relationship. And the church is meant to be part of that. In fact, the best part of that, a place where whoever you are, whether you're old or young, whether you're male or female, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're black or white, everybody has an equal part together. We are made in God's image and we are part of his great community. And we long that each of you in this church would find a belonging in a smaller group, a small group, a triplet, a formation, a a team, where you're known and loved and you belong and serve. Right at the other end of the Bible, Genesis 21 and 22, we wind up in a beautiful city, a garden city, with God's people back in perfect relationship with him and with each other in a restored heaven and earth. But again, more about that in a later sermon. God made us for relationship. That's the first main point, with him and with each other. Then secondly, God made us to rule over his creation, to look after it for him. Let's go back to verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And verse 28, it says it again. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea. There's no sense that this is meant to be in a domineering, destructive way. It's shepherding God's creation in relationship with him, for him, his way. We are, if you like, sons and daughters of the king of kings made to rule over his creation. I don't know if you've ever noticed how many of our stories we tell are about princes and princesses, fairy stories, Disney stories, legends like the Lord of the Rings, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Narnia. They tap into something deep within us. We are created to be sons and daughters of the King of Kings, ruling over his creation. And they tap into something in us. Sometimes we feel we're we're trapped. We're not quite doing it right. Whether you're trapped like Rapunzel in her tower or Simba in exile. These stories tap into the fact that we're made for so much more. And Genesis tells us that we're made by God to rule over his creation in relationship with God. He is a God who delights in creating. He's a worker. He works and he rests. All sorts of wonderful working imagery. God as an artist, as a designer, as a creator, an engineer, a builder, an ecologist, a zoologist, a gardener, a musician, a poet. All these streams and many more are there. And we are made in his image, with him, to work his creation, to rule over it and to enjoy it with him. The point I'm making is that we're made to do things, not just to be, but also to do. Whether your work is paid or unpaid, 
We are made to steward God's creation and all his gifts. That's why unemployment is such a curse unless meaningful uh, work can be found. We are to, I wrote down this phrase I read, to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere, to steward his gifts in creation with him. Now, God could have all done it directly. He made Adam from dust. He could have made all of us just like that. Uh, but he prefers to partner with us, to take a man and a woman, to bring them together in a marriage and through them to create children. God could have made all our food fall from the sky like he did for 40 years with manna as the Israelites walked through the desert. Uh, but he prefers to partner with us in growing it through farming, through agriculture, through trade. God could have put us in a ready-made society, but he prefers to put us in a garden to work it, to cultivate and to create civilization. Whether it's at a low level, Juliet will soon be picking blackberries and making her autumn blackberry jam, one of the favorite things, just taking the creation. God could have made blackberry jam just arrive, but actually he likes us to partner with him. Uh, or whether it's the big, bigger aspects we do. Now, two particular phrases in verse 28. Let's put verse 28 up again. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. So we'll just think about each of those. This is sometimes called the cultural mandate from God, if you like to give it a title the theologians love. Uh, first of all, be fruitful and increase in number. Obviously, there was just Adam and Eve. Uh, the family grows and grows and need to overflow and to rule over the whole world, it needs to grow. Well... Having had five children ourselves, we think we've done our part in that one. Uh, and I can safely say it's been the most exhausting thing of my life, raising five children, and the most rewarding thing, endless sleepless nights. Taking your wallet to the chemist and tipping it out and saying, help yourself. Uh, the years of headaches, then the years of heartache. Uh, the joy in seeing them go well. The depth of pain when one's making a mess of things. Uh, God tells us uh, to be fruitful, to increase in number. Raising them has been the most important thing God has called Juliet and me to do. And that when we give account to him, long before he asks me what I did at St. John's Hinckley or St. Paul's in Leamington, I'm sure God will want me to give account for how I parented those children. If you are a parent, long before any of your work, that's the most important thing God's called you to do after loving him and loving your husband or wife. Now, we've been very fortunate that we get given big vicarages to live in. I think if we had one with 10 bedrooms, we might have had to have more children before we'd had our quiverful, but uh, five has felt about right. Uh, and Juliet hasn't had to go out to pay the bills. But we've really struggled to answer the question when people say, does your wife work? Work all day and all night most of the time. Our society does not value the raising of children nearly enough. And if you are raising children... I want you to hear that what you are doing is right at the heart of how God's made you. Uh, let me just quote briefly from uh, a book we read years ago. Rob Parsons, a generation ago, wrote The 60-Minute Father and The 60-Minute Mother and various others. And I'm sure these have been superseded uh, down the years and more up-to-date. Uh, but this was addressing what do you do if you're a mum giving yourself fully to raising children and people say, do you work? Uh, and this mum was saying how embarrassed she was not knowing what answer to give. So she came up with an answer and waited for the moment when she was at a party with a bit of cheese on the end of a stick and someone said, do you work? And she was ready 
And she said, yes, I do. I'm in a program of social development. At present, I'm working with three age groups, first with babies and toddlers. That involves a basic grasp of medicine and child psychology. Next, I'm working with teenagers. I confess the program's not going too well in that area. <laughs> Finally, at evenings and weekends, I work with a man aged 39 who's exhibiting all the classic symptoms of midlife crisis. That's mainly psychiatric work. The whole job involves planning a make-it-happen attitude and an ability to crisis manage. I used to be an international fashion model, but I got bored, she said. Uh, I commend it to you, but we need to value each other. And we value, and we value the work God calls us to do. We value the raising of family. Mums and dads, if God's given you children, give your best energies to that, the best you can, given what else God calls you to do. God calls many others to go out to work as well. And we need to juggle these responsibilities. There's no right answer about whether it's right to go out to work or not. Sometimes it's a question of finances. Sometimes it's calling for what God's called you to do. But it's vital, dads, that you are fully engaged in raising your children as much as you can as well. My great privilege in working from home it meant getting the work done was pretty difficult when my study was children's paper paradise for, to come and play in but actually to be hands-on. Tragically, in my curacy, I remember sitting with a man, this family on the fringe of the church, uh, his wife and children being drawn to church. He was always too busy. They were longing for him to cut back work, would have settled for a much lower salary in a smaller house. They wanted him. And I sat down with him to try and explain this, and he didn't listen. And eventually, they left him. He was never there anyway, and they left him. And I remember sitting down with him, and he was broken. And he said, I was only doing it for them. But they didn't want the stuff. They wanted him. Uh, the world shouts that if you've got the most toys, you're winning. It's not. It's the relationship. We're made for a relationship. And that is so much more important uh, than having too much stuff. Now, you have to get the balance right and pray through how God is calling you. I've not got this balance right. There have been many times I've given too much of my time to my work, which was leading the church, and forgetting that God says, I will build my church, and husbands, you love your wives. And quite often I was trying to build the church and asking God to love my wife. And you need to get it the right way round. Uh, none of us gets it right. But God has made us to partner with him in raising children. If you're parents, definitely, but all of us in the church family whether single or married, whether young or old, in this family we have hordes of children, 230 under 18s, 150 under 11s, 80, 11 to 18s. Uh, this is an everybody job, whether you're interceding or whether you're hands-on or supporting. God calls some people to be single. Some couples go through the dreadful pain of infertility, and it's painful for a reason, because there's something wired into us. Some are called to adopt and to foster. And in this family, this church family, we have some wonderful families doing that. And every family needs help and support from everybody else. If you're called to have children, it's at the focal point of God's call to you. If you're not called to have children, you can be involved with a family or families, with our children or youth. Uh, one of our children has a wonderful godfather who hasn't got children himself. He's got lots of godchildren. They are a joy to him, and he is a great blessing to every family. Uh, I won't say more on that because it's not meant to be a sermon all on parenting, but it's there. We are made to be relational. We're made to, uh, to, to rule over the world. That includes creating people who do carry that on. 
And then the, the last phrase, the fill the earth and subdue it, verse 28. So Adam and Eve and their descendants were to do far more than to build a family. They're to build society. Let's just put verse 28 back up there so we can just see it. Fill the earth and subdue it. We're to subdue creation in the sense of taking the raw energy and making it into things that are useful for building society. Like taming a wild animal, the way you tame a garden. If you leave the Lord to do the gardening on his own, it doesn't always go that well. We're to do it with him. Uh, Now, it's easy to have a picture of the Garden of Eden as the perfect place for rest and leisure. But the reality is it's nature in the raw, lots of potential, and it needs working. And Adam is put there, and then with his family, to work it and care for it. Genesis 2.15 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, which means delight to work it and take care of it. And the garden's meant to bring fulfillment, but it needs to be worked. He's got to harness the energy of the river. He's got to use the wood of the trees to build. He's got to dig out metals from the earth's crust. He's got to harness the power of the sun and the wind. He's got to plant crops, build houses, develop technology, build society. This is our job that God has given us to do. I wonder if you've ever read these verses when you're reading Genesis 2, 10 to 14, and wondered, why is that there? A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And if you've ever been reading the beginning of Genesis, and you think, just you skip over that. What, what's that about? The point is that God has put resources there for us to discover and to use and to harness uh, gold, onyx, resin, and so much more. A uh, brilliant book on this I commend to you is John Mark Comer's book called Garden City. Work, rest, and the art of being human. Looking in far more detail than you can in one sermon on God's creation and at at the end of Revelation, the Garden City, and our purpose within that. And if what I'm preaching into about our purpose of being relational and ruling over creation, you want to find out more, I commend that. John Mark Comer, Garden City. Tim Keller defines work like this. Rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular, to thrive and flourish. And God calls each of us into particular jobs, works, whether paid or voluntary, uh, to do that into business, into caring, into education, into healthcare, into building houses and roads, or engineering, or music, or the arts, or politics, or cleaning. All of it is that we are there to care for and steward and create uh, for others' good, to build a society that honours God. Now, of course, we have gone wrong. And there is the potential for us to do this in a way that is destructive. And our generation is waking up to this eventually. And that's why we're going to have an extra Sunday, a climate Sunday, as we head towards the COP26 conference in a couple of weeks, just to focus on that particular thing as we're obviously at a critical season and next week we'll just celebrate God's creation always good at this time to do that as well 
we as humanity have been greedy. We've overexploited the resources. We've put people into slavery or abused them through pornography. Or we've been racist and there's been genocide. And we have abused God's word. There's no sense of abuse creation. It's shepherd it, steward it, look after it, care for it. Uh, and that brings me to the last point for today, that we don't live in the Garden of Eden. We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2 land. We live in Genesis 3 land. And we'll have a fuller sermon looking on this in a few weeks' time. But Genesis 3 tells the story of our rebellion against God, about how we think we know better, how we've said no to God's commands and we've gone our own way. It's called the fall. It's a complete catastrophe. It should be called the catastrophe where everything is spoilt, our relationship with God, with each other, with creation. And the story of the whole Bible is how God gets us back, how he redeems and restores and recreates, right to that beautiful picture at the end of the Bible of this garden city with countless millions worshipping God in a beautiful, perfect new creation. And it all comes about through Jesus. He is at the heart of the story. He comes to restore what sin and Satan have wrecked. He shows us what it is to be perfectly human. And the decisive point is his death on the cross and his resurrection. That's why our focus is to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, his apprentices, if you like, to be with him, to become more like him, to learn to do what he would do if he was us. How would he live my life? How would he live your life if he was you? to work with God in every area of our lives to see his kingdom come as we pray in the Lord's Prayer on earth as in heaven and to partner with him. It's as simple as picking blackberries and turning them into jam. It's as demanding as raising children or leading a school or a business or a government. There's all sorts of parts we have to play and each one of us has a part to play in this and along the way to grow in relationship with God. So tomorrow, as you go back to work, you are not just a parent struggling to get the kids ready for school. You are partnering with God in building his kingdom. You are not just an engineer or building a business, but partnering with God in making things that help people thrive. You're not just a student or a carer or a teacher or a nurse or a doctor. You are partnering with God in helping others to develop. And we need to be close to Jesus because this is hard. And it's what he calls us to do. Uh, if you're new to St Paul's, let me explain what happens at the end of a sermon. Eventually, I come up for air and you get to breathe. Uh, we're going to take a few minutes to process this. Our children get collected from their groups at 10 to 12, so we've got a bit of time. Uh, sometimes we go on and you have to leave during the last song to get them. Uh, today, we have a little bit of time. If the band could come back ready to lead us in our last song... I'm going to invite you please to stand, to stand now. I'm going to lead in a prayer to stand and we'll just be still and let the Lord minister to us before we worship in song and then there's an opportunity to receive prayer if you would like that before the children need to be collected. So let's pray. How we praise you, Lord God our Father, for making us and this beautiful world. We praise you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that you are a relationship of love and you draw us into relationship with you and you make us to be relational people, caring for your world, to rule over it the right way. We are so sorry that 
too often we've done it the wrong way. But come upon us by your spirit. Come Holy Spirit and minister to each of us individually now. Take these truths and uh, if there's something particular that I've said that's from you, apply that to each one or other. If there's something else you want to do in us in the stillness, come Holy Spirit and minister to us and just be still. See what God wants to do in you.